Welcome back to Men's Levens from the Edge. This is Jeremy Glazer, the co-chair of the Men's Levin Venture Capital and Emerging Company Practice. Men's Levin is a nationally leading law firm focused on helping emerging growth companies achieve success. Check us out at mincedge.com. We are really fortunate today to have with us George Dow. George is the founder of Dow Vineyards, a 120-acre vineyard based in Paso Robles, California. He has co-founded or served as an executive officer or director of numerous technology companies, including SG Biofuels, Dow Systems, Fred's, Digital Orchid, eAssist Global Solutions, and BMJ Medical Management, Inc. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss George's extensive experience in starting and funding a number of technology companies and the lessons learned along the way. George, thank you so much for joining us. So glad to be with you again, Jeremy. Wonderful. So I always like to start off these discussions by asking, why did you choose the hard life of starting and building technology companies? That's actually a very good question. I ask myself this question quite often. I guess at the end of the day, you're born with this idea of challenging yourself with a mindset that likes to observe things find ways to do them better. And if you've got an idea about how to monetize that, build a company around it. So I think it's a way of thinking more so than a way of anything. Because even when I was in college, I would listen to my professors and I would always be uh, mindful of them potentially making a mistake. So I I have a knack to be hyper-focused on what's going on in front of me and being able to determine whether or not it could be done in a better way. I guess I've been this way my whole life, and and I don't know where I get these genes from, but this is the mindset that sort of propelled me into starting various companies with various concepts, various ideas, various solutions to a similar problem in various industries. Well, you've certainly started a lot of companies in diverse industries, and you know we've worked together and been fortunate enough to work together on a number of these, uh, but, you know, SG Biofuels, Dow Systems, eAssist were ones that we, we had a chance to work together on. Um, I know you raised money for a number of these companies. What was it like raising money for these companies? And what did, what did you learn in, in the process of doing this, you know, the first time, the second time, the third time that made you better at it as you went along? Well, when, when you're looking at doing anything in life, you have to always take a cross-section of time. Um, the timing was different for Dow Systems, it was different for ESS, it was different for SG Biofuels, and fortunately we didn't have any fundraising necessary for Dow Vineyards, but um, when, when we started Dow Systems, Danny and I were very young, I was 26, he was 22, no one funded us, so we funded ourselves through deposits from sales we made with customers. So as long as we sold and we got deposits up front, we used this to fund our company. And it worked pretty well and it allowed us to establish a discipline, um, financial discipline in building companies that's second to none. And as hard as it was back then, I have no regrets because we've learned some valuable lessons in, in growing companies on a shoestring budget. Of course, when you become more successful, everybody wants to be part of the equation, so before Dow Systems went public, we were able to do a mezzanine fund, and it was easy to raise money then because the company was about to go public. 
When we started ESS, at the time, um, the web-based applications weren't even known by anyone. And everyone, there was a frenzy for participating in the internet world. And so when you walked up to a venture capital with some credibility and a pretty good idea for a business and a business model, you basically got funded with nothing. And that's what happened at the time. And, and if you recall, many companies got funded and not all of them were successful. So ah, yes, the good old days. Yeah, the, so those, the, those were, you know, like, again, this was a cross-section of time in the in the 2000s. You know, when we um, got involved in, 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 um, with this Digital Orchid, for example, that was a company way out of its time. It's almost 20 years old, and we had technology back then that's still not used today in displaying on a mobile device a real-time synchronous application from a server to a mobile device anywhere in the world. So we were way ahead of, of our time, and then consequently that did not work. And obviously Steve Jobs came up with iTunes and um, a way to create an ecosystem to leverage the, 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 the iPhone investment and make it do more for you than just what it does in ways of email, calendar, and whatnot, which was brilliant. Um, so at the time, uh, very few people were interested in investing in that, unless they were NASCAR, and at that time we had NASCAR, and so they were interested in participating because they had a 75 million viewer audience and they had no way of reaching them on their, on their mobile phone. And then you go to SG Biofuels, and this is when the barrel of oil was 150 bucks, and everybody goes, oh my God, you know, we're ruining the atmosphere, we're ruining the world, and we should be looking at biofuels, so whether it's renewable energies, etc. So there was a big appetite for anybody that could um, break the paradigm of having to invest in um, uh, Saudi Arabia barrel of oil for 150 bucks, if you could create it for $60 and make it biodegradable, then you've got the market to yourself. Well, that was also temporary, and then that changed as time went by. So it just goes to show you that the, the timing at which you raise money has as much to do with your success as what exactly you have to offer and what solutions you have to, you have to uh, put out. Today, in this environment, for example, if you ask me what advice I would give to a young person trying to get into the, into the business of starting their own company, I will tell you that it's very, very difficult today to raise money like, like the good old days, as you called them. Uh, most of the venture capital companies, they're looking for billion dollar plus ideas. They're not looking for a company that will grow 20% a year and return a few million dollars in profit. They're looking for those unicorns, you know, those opportunities that are obviously fantastic, like Snapchat, like Facebook, like Twitter, like, um, you know, you name it. So this is, this is what investors are looking for today. And unless you've got an idea that could easily scale, and what I mean by that is you enter the node as a node on the network and you're able to scale hugely, then I think you're going to have a really hard time convincing venture capital to spend money because whether they invest $5 million or $500 million, their time with you and their time on the board is the same. So that's what you've got going for you and against you, depending on how big your idea is. One of the problems today is when the Internet sort of got started in the mind of the consumer and everybody wanted to have their website, 
The whole idea of the internet is to democratize the way e-commerce is transacted, so you can basically cut the middleman out. Well, everybody got very excited, and all these websites came out, all this affiliate marketing and banner advertising. But what happened was actually the opposite. Now you've got what we call a hot economy. So between Amazon and Apple and Google and Alibaba and Tencent, predominantly the majority of the traffic is done through these sites. So if you want to play into this world, you're going to have to consider those five organizations or six organizations. And if you have something that can make their business better, you've got a huge opportunity to build a very successful business. And if, you've, if you don't have anything that makes your business better and if you've got something that they can easily compete with, uh, I think it'll be very, very difficult. A perfect example of that, even though Snapchat went public and has a, mind, a, a, a lion's share of the young demographic, Facebook was, was able to copy it with Instagram very quickly. And so now a lot of these features on Snapchat on, on Instagram and Instagram immediately went to the moon in ways of subscribers. So you see, we're not in a fast, fast mover um, environment anymore. We are in a fast follower environment. So this is where you need to decide, are you creating something brand new that no one's heard of? Or are you taking something that's been done and improving it? And I would say today, if I were to bet, I would say it'd be a lot easier to find money when you have a fast follower idea versus a fast mover idea or a first mover idea. So I don't know if we can elaborate on this, but basically a first mover is someone that discovers something no one else knows about and starts spending a lot of money to not be a pioneer that loses it all. And you need a lot of money to do that and establish your presence. Otherwise, you see something that's working and you think you can improve it, and you, you basically cookie-cutter it, and you improve it, and you become very successful. A perfect example of that is Apple. Apple practically invented nothing, but they took a look at what was happening, and they perfected it with packaging, with a solution, with support, and they sold it all over the world. A brilliant execution of, in my opinion, still the largest startup in the world. Well. Thank you, George. I mean, so many great insights. I want to unpack a couple of these because I think they're really important for young entrepreneurs and starting uh, founders of companies to hear and to understand. So one thing you mentioned about, about Dow Systems is that you weren't able to raise money from outsiders. And so you went ahead and you built the company in what we call bootstrapping. And what I always tell companies, um, you know, they ask me, what's the best way to raise money? And I kind of somewhat jokingly say, the best way to raise money is revenue. <laughs> and, um, and, you, and you did that. Um, was, it, was it because you were young? Was it because of the industry you were in? You, you, know, you made some great comments and points about timing. Was it just the timing that you couldn't raise money at, at the early stage of the company? Maybe unpack that a little bit. Well, back then, I mean, uh, we're talking in the in the in the uh, late '80s, early '90s. Um, venture capital was very traditional. Um, there were not that many companies that just became a billion-dollar-plus companies, and so because the opportunity for having everyone have a mobile phone and buy it and have scale wasn't there, so people invested in software companies or hardware companies that basically had an opportunity to make forty, fifty, a hundred million dollars in revenue down the road. 
So both Daniel and I, even though you know I was a PhD dropout from UCSD, and Danny was a computer engineer, people looked at us as you know these are these two crazy guys with these crazy ideas about something none of us ever used before, which was a local area network. And why should we fund them? They have no business experience. They're in the services business, and the services business, unless you're there, you're never going to make any money. So everyone basically said no. And and for me, no is where everything starts. And so we didn't take, we didn't care uh, that they didn't want to invest in us. And so we believed in our mission enough to be able to evangelize networking in um, the U.S. We stumbled over hospitals. We didn't know hospitals had so much money to spend. And then we became hospital systems integrators, and that's what we specialized on. It. And then after that, everybody tried to copy us, but we had a pretty good handle over the healthcare business in general when it comes to IT. So if you're convinced of something, like you said, the best way to build your company is get a customer, get a customer to believe in you, um, cut your rates, get your customer to be your reference point, your beacon, and then get more customers this way, and your best marketing is in reducing your cost in order to achieve a result for someone that they would turn around and tell the whole world, I cannot believe I paid this and I got that, and I love working with this gentleman or this lady or these people. If you can do that and you do it over and over again, you know, you, you know the, whole, the, the old adage, if, if you want to be a millionaire, figure out how to make $1 and do it a million times over. It's the same thing. So the more customers you get, the more, the happier the customers are, the better your reputation, the more credibility you build. And nowadays, with the advent of, of all these mobile devices being ready to consume data and information, the opportunity to enter that network and be successful, I don't want to say it's a lot easier, but if you've got something good, it's a lot faster than it was 20 years ago. Such, such good advice, George, because not only does it help you, like you say, you know, test the market, understand what the customer wants, and kind of you know, iterate, iterate, so that you're really leading the pack in the market. It also speaks to what you talked about earlier about how the venture capital markets have changed, and by getting customers, by getting that follow-on, by starting to grow revenue, that's what starts to make you attractive in the current environment for venture capitalists. You know, unlike, you know, in the crazy times of dot-com in 2000 where you could raise venture capital money on a PowerPoint with no customers and an idea, that's just not the case today. I will, I will tell you my personal opinion, and it may be, may be going against um, your typical customer being a VC. I would not go to a venture capital company if I were starting a company. Um, more often than not, the CEOs get axed, only in a matter of time. Because what you need, the skills and the acumen you need to start a company are typically not the same skills you need to manage a company. And a perfect example of that is Steve Jobs. And so, you know, you've got somebody that created something really cool, company almost went bankrupt, Basically, he gets fired. They bring in what, what's called professional manager in John Scully. And then that doesn't work. And then meanwhile, he goes and builds Pixar and sells it to the moon. And then he went and, and built Next because he knew the operating system would be bought by Apple. And he comes back to Apple after having founded uh, two other companies that were very successful. And then I think Apple learned a big lesson is the, the spirit of an entrepreneur is something you don't take lightly. 
And a lot of companies ha have a real challenge in, 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 work, in crossing what's called the Bermuda Triangle of business. In the beginning of a company, you need that entrepreneur that's going to work tirelessly, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, be an, an evangelist, tell people what he's doing or she's doing, uh, convert customers, or get wins, win, 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 win every day. But there comes a point where that entrepreneur has now a, a number of people working for, for them, and Typically, the best leaders aren't always very good managers. In fact, today in the U.S., in my opinion, we are way overled and way undermanaged. So the, the, the balance comes in is when a company starts getting large enough for the founder to keep their role, they have to have the skill to hire the right managers and the right professionals to work as a symphony to let them do what they do best and to let the entrepreneur do what they do best. And this is not an easy task. I found this incredibly difficult in my young entrepreneurial life. And I've only learned this really recently after having had several successes and several failures that in business, the people you surround yourself with have as much to do with your success as your IQ and your intelligence and also the timing in the market for what is you're trying to offer. So you got these three legs of the stool that I think are not interchangeable. You need the right timing, you need yourself to be fully on, and then you need to have people around you that you know you can rely on. And unfortunately, as a startup that's bootstrapped, you can't afford to hire those people. And in fact, you shouldn't in the beginning. But when you flesh out the business model and you flesh out the ideas, and you're starting to show that you're doing transaction after transaction and it's working, this is the time where you need to bring someone in to help you scale the organization. And again, it's like marriages. You know, you, you marry the, the wrong person, you got a problem. You marry the right person, you go to the moon. So businesses are no different. It's also a relationship. You hire the right relationship and you have the right relationship within your company and the sky is the limit. Well, you've, you've had so many successes, and now you get to live the life that all of us dream of. The, you get to live up in a beautiful wine region, you start your own winery, and you've had great success with Dow Vineyards. Is, is, it, is it everything everybody says it is? The, the short answer is it's more than what everybody thinks it is. Um, I don't even know where to start. I... I I feel that I, I, you know, in life there are things you do because of a why and there are things you do because of a why not. This was really a why not project for me. My brother's the one who wanted to do this. You know, having grown up in Paris and south of France, you know, San Diego is already a, a countryside compared to those places. And so for me to think I would one day live in a, in a countryside setting um, was a romantic idea, granted. And something I've always dreamt about because we love country. Both Danny and I used to spend well, weekends at our grandfather's uh, orchards and we used to love that, doing that. But I didn't think it would be realistic for us at a, you know, what I think is a young age in the 40s to move to wine country and, and pursue a dream of a better life. Um, at first I was reluctant. Um, you know, I love my brother. He's, he's he and I have been bonded since we were kids. 
with all the trauma we've been together. So I wanted to help him do this, and then as the more I helped him, the more I realized um, how fun this was. Um, you're bringing pleasure to people. Um, you're dealing with earth. You're dealing with climate. You're dealing with soil. You're dealing with farming. Um, there is a certain purity and grace that comes with being a farmer that is very appealing. And a lot of the lifestyle that comes with this is glorifying in the sense that it's freeing because now you're fighting your own mountain, you're fighting your own land to unlock the potential that's in it and put that pleasure in a bottle that people can have all over the world. It's pretty humbling. Um, you know, go down my ear, don't ever be so humble, you're not that good. <laughs> so I'll be careful saying how humble I am. Having said that, I can tell you that um, I came here with a lot of confidence and a lot of aspirations. Uh, and 10 years later, I have a lot of humility and I have a lot of appreciation for the small things in life, the, the good mornings, the hellos, the thank yous, the, the, the ability to let someone in front of you by, with your car, um, the life that has only positive stress, zero negative stress. And I've gotta be honest, you know, if this was a failed project, it probably would not be the same, but because it's been wildly successful, very well received all over the world, um, it's, it really is truly um, a calling and a destiny. And I feel that all these things we've been through in our lives, we're learning lessons to get us to this point where we can give back and give back to the folks that we hire, give back to the uh, consumers that join our club, give back to those who represent our brand all over the world, and then give back to those who buy it and believe that they're now consuming something that tastes like something that I've paid three, four, five times for. So I'd like to think of Dow as the approachable dream to the average person because we combine people, place, and product. Our products over deliver. Our place is incredible. You'd have to visit it to see it. And the people is what it's all about. One of the, one of the things that always interested me in, in how other people view life and how they make it simple is um, Warren Buffett said, you know, in life, you just have to do a couple things right, and the rest will take care of itself. And Frank Geary, one of the famous architects, said that he's successful at these fantastically looking buildings because he puts the person first. The so last thing you want is to have a good looking building that you can't use and has no operations inside. I like to think that Dow put the people front and central in our equation. Everything we've created, from the hospitality room, to the views, to the quality of the wines, to the clones we planted, to the people we hired, to the tasting room staff we've, we've brought on board, to the distributors that we've partnered with, is all about glorifying humanity and glorifying people, because without people there is and there are no businesses. And so I encourage all the young entrepreneurs that are listening to me to realize that there are a lot of businesses, and there are a lot of business models, but there aren't that many people. It's the people that make things happen. And to focus on the humanity aspect of your business and the people aspect of it, because 
as a single entrepreneur, no matter how smart you are, there's only so much you can do. But when the rest of your people feel the passion and get into that culture, it's the culture that builds the company, not necessarily the entrepreneur. And if a younger entrepreneur can endorse a culture and hire a culture and promote that culture and rely on their people and have those great relationships inside that are based on trust and respect, there is nothing this team can accomplish. This is why they say you give a B product to an A team versus an A product to a B team and the B product with an A team will win because they'll figure out how working together can leapfrog the competitor. Just wonderful to hear that, George. You know, as we wrap up, I just for the for people who don't really know the history of Dow, I, I do think it's important to point out that I think there's this oh, you know, all these tech people they make money in tech, and then they go open up a winery. But but you guys really did something very unique. You were again showing true entrepreneurial spirit. You guys went to an area, Paso Robles, that was not really known for Bordeaux-style wines. As we know, it was known more for Rhone-style wines. And you guys said, no, we think this is an ideal place to do this. And I know that there were uh, doubters and critics, and you guys really changed the view of a whole area in what you did. I I promise you, uh, Jeremy, that I'd like to tell you how small we are and how great we were and how much insight we had. All I can tell you is this. We're not the first people to make Cabernet and Paso Robles. We've seen others who were, were successful, and we looked at the soil, and we looked at the terroir, and it, it screamed that it needed the kind of love that the first growth wineries give to the soil, and some of the cold wineries in Napa give to the soil, and both Danny and I decided that in this case, again, it's better to be a fast follower than a first mover, but the only place we were first mover, Cabernet was our fast follower. The first mover is we planted our vineyards on what Andrea Chalachev calls the jewel of ecological elements, which is amazing, terroir, perhaps the best terroir on earth, according to geologists, and actually our phenolic content out of this soil is the highest on earth measured by Napa X-ray. And the phenolic content is what provides the complexity, the aroma, the tannins, and the structure of a wine. So you put that in the hands of a passionate winemaker that can unlock the potential in those tannins and tame it enough to be in a bottle as it was meant to be without adding any tartaric acid or any other third-party products. Um, the consumer can taste it. Now, the difference is we went very high up the ladder and we planted the best clones. We planted the highest density vineyards we could and we stressed the vines with our technology to the max because what we were hoping to is to unlock the potential of a first growth Cabernet from California. And that we did. And honestly, we didn't know what we were going to get. In theory, it was looking good, but sometimes practice in theory have a Grand Canyon divide between the two of them. The, then again, the, the courage, the vision, the conviction, the perseverance, and the faith an entrepreneur has, gathered by incredible talent pool of people that joined the journey and distributors that believed in us, is what made this company successful. This is not an entrepreneur's success. 
it took a village to get to where we are and we're going to keep increasing the size of this village because as small as this mountain is bringing pleasure to people all over the world George, I just love the consistent theme about the importance of team and people and culture. It's, it's so wonderful to hear. We, we do need to wrap up. I want to thank you so much, George, for taking the time to share these incredible insights with our listeners. This is Jeremy Glazer of Mintz 11, and thank you for listening to this edition of From the Edge.